Hey, one more thing before you go. In this episode, we have a conversation with a decorated firefighter EMT whose career of saving people's lives came to a culmination atop a pile of rubble at Ground Zero on 9-11. When he was seven stories up helping take apart that pile of rubble piece by piece by hand, he stopped to rest and sat down, and when he looked down the street, all he saw was the gray cement color all over everything. The buildings, the windows, the streets, the cars, he saw nothing but a big, dark corridor of gray. He paused and looked up to the left to see a clear, perfect blue sky. He looked to the right, and he again saw a clear, perfect blue sky. He looked above him and saw a clear, perfect blue sky. He then looked back down the street and saw the gray corridor and said to himself, I just walked through the valley of death. He again looked up and prayed that nothing fell on top of him or his colleagues and that they make it home alive. It was a life-changing episode. Does your life move forward? Or do you try and force your life back to what was once a routine and move on? You're going to learn that and how you too can move forward in life when you are faced with a life-changing decision. I'm your host, Michael Hurst, and this is That Thing About, Seven Stories Up, Walking Through the Valley of Death. My guest in this episode is Alan Placer. He's a decorated retired firefighter EMT that was one of the responders to Ground Zero on 9-11. Like so many others, this changed his life. It's a little bit of PTSD, some life-changing decisions to go back into a different type of toxic environment, divorced and raising his high-functioning autistic son alone. His life journey was reinvented and he was able to take what he called a side hustle and turn it into a multi-million dollar corporation. He takes his experiences on the road to help others overcome their fear, achieve their visions, and reinvent their lives. We're going to share that journey and help you learn how to overcome and achieve your happiness in a kind of a unique way. So, welcome to the show, Alan. Well, thanks for having me, Mike. That was a great introduction. I, I tip. We don't have to, have to do the cast. It's all there. Well, well, you know, you you have a you have a fantastic journey. I think it's worth uh, worth sharing with people so they know that they can have a little hope that uh, even in the darkest of moment, there's always light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah, I, I, there always is. It's your your choice if you want to see it and uh, and go towards the light or not. Exactly. Exactly. So you know, I like to. Uh, I like to kind of talk about uh, kind of your beginnings and where you came from and, and how you got to where you're at today. Uh, so let's unfold your life a little bit. Uh, where'd you grow up? I uh, grew up in Jersey. Um, my dad uh, was a real high achieving guy himself uh, in his early years. He owned several gas stations uh, and then uh, opened a hobby store as a kind of a side gig of his own that turned into a large 10,000 square foot business. You don't really see hobby stores anymore today, but uh, back in the eighties, it was a a fabulous thing. I had a brother and a sister and a stay at home mom. 
and uh, that all ended in um, when I was nine years old in 1980, when my folks got divorced in a very violent, ugly divorce that kind of separated the family for the all the way up until today. Um, my dad uh, came down with a manic depression that I in my all my EMS years I never saw anybody with the levels that he had uh, and bipolar. Um, my dad never worked a day in his life again. Uh, I wound up, I, I actually moved in with him with my brother initially uh, when my folks split and my sister went the other way. And my brother very shortly after moved to my mother and I lived with my father and he was un, uncapable of raising me. He just laid on a couch every day, uh, depressed and uh, left me to do my own accord. And I was getting myself up for school, dressed, eating, going, doing homework, doing everything on my own. And by some God's grace, uh, I remember riding my bike at 10 years old and trying to figure out what it was all for. I don't know why I thought that deeply at 10 years old. And I decided I needed to be a good man. That, that, was, that was my purpose in life, was to be a good person. And I didn't know what that meant at 10. And I was going to go explore and find out what that was. Uh, you know, I could have easily fallen on a, a drug path or a gang path at the time. Uh, and I'm, I'm very grateful and blessed that I did not. And uh, tried to figure it out. And what I figured out by the time I was 17, uh, at that point, I had uh, moved back uh, to my mother's. Um, and I figured out that uh, I wanted to be a firefighter because I thought it would make me a better man. Uh, I really didn't have a huge interest in putting out fires. I had an interest in helping people. I had figured out that helping means serving. Uh, and what better way to serve than being a, a firefighter? Um, that, probably not the right reason to become a firefighter. I think you actually have to have an interest in danger and things like that. So like, so like cops, people always ask me, why would you want to be a cop? You know, why would you want to do that? And it's like, well, you know, there's this like innate thing within us that that kind of I think draws us to helping people from that perspective. At least from my from my idea for being a cop, it was I wanted to. I came from a very dysfunctional family myself, and uh, because of that, you know, my desire to be going to law enforcement kind of evolved from that as well. See if I can help people from that perspective, and that's kind of why I did it. Yeah, yeah and the the fire department I joined just happened to be a very active department. My first week, we fought a JP4 jet fuel fire. The second week, we had a lumber mill fire. The third week, we had a house explode. Uh, that like there was a, It was a roof and about three foot of wood underneath of it that was left from a gas explosion. So I got a real hard trial by fire. Um, but what I did learn really quickly was that EMS was more my passion. Uh, and I got heavily into EMS um, I was going to college at the time, but it wasn't working for me. And uh, I, I realized EMS was more the place. So as soon as I graduated school, uh, I went right into paramedic school uh, and started working my way through that program and really became a expert when it came to mass casualty. Uh, the, the, I just found that a lot of people in my surroundings weren't handling Whenever there was an incident with multiple people, they, they weren't triaging well and figuring it out. And I always looked for where there was a need. And so I just filled it and did it. Uh, 
and I had a great career with it. I absolutely loved it. I kept doing it uh, through my 20s, uh, and and I, I really loved it, and I still miss it today, doing EMS and fire. Uh, a lot of kind of cool rescues and a lot of cool bonds you make with people. Uh, and what I realized today, though, is all those years, it didn't make me more of a man. Uh, if you ever read the book, No More Mr. Nice Guy, it turns out that's what I was, was a Mr. Nice Guy. And, uh, you know, trying to please everybody to get people to accept who I was instead of just accepting who I was myself. Uh, yeah, I think that's a journey go. that a lot of us have to take and we have to realize the, that um, we have to stop pleasing everybody else and learn to understand and make ourselves happy first. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, and that's key. And I never understood that. And to me, it was, you know, I'll be happy if I make everybody else happy. Why wouldn't I be? Uh, I met my first wife through EMS even. And um, uh, we had a, a son. He was a year and a half old on September 11. And uh, I was, we were actually in North Carolina at the time. And uh, when the first plane hit, my wife and I were actually in bed that morning and I was up and getting dressed as soon as the first plane hit. I just knew with my connections up in New York that, you know, they might need me there. And the, I was with the Red Cross in North Carolina, their disaster action team there, which was extremely active on fire scenes and of course for hurricanes. And I got a call from our commander there and said, Hey, you know, what are you going to need to do here? And, I said, I'm, I'm not really sure. Let's just see what, what plays out. And then when Terror One fell, um, I got in the car. I had my uniform packed and everything. And I said, look, I, I don't, all I know is that's thousands of people and they're not going to, you know, there, there's just nothing in the plans that are equipped for that level of stuff. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I was actually on the road up to uh, New York uh, I never saw the second tower fall. Uh, I didn't know I was getting phone calls in. Uh, you know, I was like, you know, they're like, hey, what do you need? I'm like, oh, I'm already on the way. And it was kind of really weird when I had to pass the Pentagon uh, to get up there. Um, I had heard what was going on there, but I figured they had the manpower there to handle. Uh, plus, I didn't know anything about the system there, and I knew the, the system well up at the city. Um how far away from were you? How far away were you from all that? From uh, well, again, I was in North Carolina when the first plane hit, so uh, I made it up to New Jersey. You know, later that afternoon, uh, just a few hours I, drive. Oh yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a long trip up. Uh, I actually blew my car up getting up there. Uh, blew the transmission on it because okay. there was no time. You were doing under ninety miles an hour, and it was it was surreal. You had your uniform hanging up, you know, in the in the car and you were in a line on the left-hand lane with other people with uniforms hanging up and everybody was just reporting oh, was military guys reporting to their bases, everybody, you know, even local stations, everybody was just reporting cause you didn't know what was coming, coming up. And, uh, I got up to Jersey and the red cross up there immediately put me in charge of a ferry that was going to be going across into the city. And uh, they said, look, can you take charge of this ferry? There's, we've got a couple of uh, surgeons um, and a bunch of supplies uh, that we want to get through. Uh, and we actually stopped. I think it was, I actually don't know which island it was. We stopped somewhere along the way up from Jersey to pick up a SWAT team. 
And then uh, we couldn't get permission to dock at Chelsea Pier. It was full. So we actually just pulled up to uh, the uh, southern end of Manhattan and jumped over the railings and went in and went to work. Uh, and uh, it was a tough, a tough 24 hours uh, up there that uh, it, it was very surreal. I mean, it's all you could say. It was really the only comparison I have is when you you see the uh, the soldiers that fought in Afghanistan door to door. You know, it's just such an unrealistic scene that you wouldn't expect to see. Um, I can only that imagine. Hit me very deeply, and especially coming from a mass casualty background. You know, I was like, all right, this is you know, you don't get more mass casualty than this, but th there was no mentally preparing yourself for this. You know, I've, in my career, I've worked uh, floods and I've worked um, snow issues. I've worked uh, different mountain rescues and things like this. Uh, obviously car accidents and, and um, shootings and, you know, you name it, I worked it, but uh, I've never ever worked something such as immense as that. Uh, we had some uh, people that worked at our department that had retired from New York City uh, Police Department and one from another transit police, another a couple of police officers. And then they had moved out west when I was in Colorado and they went to work there. Um, after they retired from New York, they came to work for us. And, you know, they uh, they really had a hard time talking about it because of, of, of the, uh, the whole situation. They, I mean, they continued to work because they loved being a cop. But it, it was an environment that they said that they just needed to get away from in order to continue it. And they really didn't really didn't want to talk about it very much, actually. I think it, yeah, yeah, it creates a, it creates a just, well, I'm sure you, I'm sure you realized that you probably suffered a little bit of PTSD working that scene. You know, I didn't realize it right away. Um, it, w there were several things that I, I realized at one point uh, I sat down on top of the pile uh, it was probably, half, you know, half, three quarters of the way through the day, uh, totally exhausted. You know, th there was no incident command structure left. It was still getting put back together and it was digging by hand, which with concrete rebar, it just doesn't work. Uh, you know, you see the pictures of the, the chain of us with Home Depot buckets trying to move little bits of rubble at a time. Uh, you know, when you're seven stories up on a pile that you're trying to move one Home Depot bucket at a time, knowing that there's seven stories below that. And uh, several times we had to get off the pile because there was threats of an actual, you know, there were other buildings that came down. And then there was like every time an airplane flew over, we didn't know at the time that it was just military planes left flying. Uh, but every time you heard a plane, like you, you wanted to run. You didn't know if there were more coming in still. And uh, so I sat down on the pile at one point and I pulled out my wallet and had a picture of my son who was a year and a half old. And I'm just looking at it and I'm thinking, I hope I make it home. You know, at any point where you're sitting could just collapse underneath you. And there was, there was no escaping it. There's no running off of it. It's, you know, a city block. And uh, I looked straight ahead and everything was gray, like concrete gray, all the buildings, all the way up, the windows, everything was coated, the traffic lights, the trees, you, there was no color. It was concrete gray, but then it was blue skies. And where I, I was, 
I don't know if I was in an intersection or near one, but I was looking between two buildings and I, I could see like a valley of blue. And I turned to my right and I saw the exact same thing. Like you couldn't tell them apart. And I'm not a religious person. I have a very strong belief in God, just me and him. But I said to myself, I'm walking in the valley of death. And I need to put my faith in him to get me out of here. And, and I, you know, whenever I hear that prayer of the valley of death, I, I always remember it that day. And I looked at my son and I said, no matter what, I'm coming home to you. Uh, and it was a very deep moment for me. Um, and I kept working the rest of the day. Uh, I could have just walked off there. Nobody really even knew anybody was there. It was just you met up with people and you started working. So, you know, you, you could have not been there just as well. Uh, I have a, a letter from the Red Cross. Thank you for, you know, your participation. And that's it. Uh, and I'm not, never asked for anything more than that. I did what I had to do. Uh, but the PTSD part of it uh, was different for me because I had grown very stale in my life uh, for the seven years before this happened. Uh, I had stopped growing. I actually went to a Dale Carnegie class that my boss sent me to. And in that class, he had us um, do a speech on our goals for the future. Now, at the time, I had a brand new construction home. I had, you know, good financial income. I had a great relationship with my wife and a great kid. And I said, I don't really have any goals. You know, I'd like a boat maybe, but, you know, that, that's about it. I'm in a good place in life. And he looked at me and he said, Alan, if you don't change, you're going to grow stale. I said, no, no, I don't want to. You don't understand. I don't want to change. This is a great place. I love everything I have. You know, I used to be dead broke and and uh, this is great. And he said it again. And unfortunately, it didn't sink into me then. You know, how long had you been on the job by that time? On when I sat down on the pile, you mean? Or, no, when you when you the this realization where they were telling you to the Carnegie thing. Oh, the Dale Carney thing? I was in my mid-30s, so I was, you know, 15-plus uh, years on the job, easily. Right? So it started at 20. Yeah, so I was about 15 years about on the 15 job. Years. So you, you were yeah. comfortable in your job? You were comfortable I was very in your, comfortable. In your life. I, yeah, I had moved into a management position, so I wasn't doing calls anymore so much. And, and that's how I felt I grew stale, was because I wasn't, directly serving people, you know, in, when you're in the office, it didn't, you don't get that same feel for it. Uh, of course, obviously I was. Right. Uh, so when I was got home from the towers, I, I got motivated again to live every day like it was my last day. And I had always had that in my head, but again, seven years in an office, I, I guess I lost it. And I really got motivated to, to excel and succeed more. Um, the only PTSD things I was really feeling, uh, I couldn't go in an ambulance anymore. That, that was done. Uh, sirens kind of scared me. Uh, Low-flying airplanes, forget it. it I, I would tremble. Um, and uh, I couldn't go into a city. I couldn't be around tall buildings at all. Um, but on a regular daily basis, you know, I was functioning. I didn't feel the deep PTSD that I had. Um, it wasn't until I went back for the 10th anniversary, uh, the first time I went back to Ground Zero, that uh, 
I realized how much PTSD I had and had a incredible day uh, dealing with it all. Uh, really did a lot of healing that day. Um, but unfortunately, the, you know, the, the year after, year and a half after, it didn't click and I didn't see the PTSD, but I also didn't see how even becoming motivated again was affecting my relationship with my wife, who was not a very motivated person. Uh, and it tore our relationship apart. I think the two combined in the end. And um, we wound up separating. Uh, and when we separated, she didn't really want our son, who we were just at that time learning had high functioning autism. He was nine years old, the same age that my parents broke up. And uh, so he wound up living with me. I had $200 to my name. I was now working for my mom and she had the hobby store and it was becoming the end of hobby store days. So the store was you know, not very successful. I was making $15 an hour. I, I got $200 uh, and a, a studio apartment and my son and, and had to restart my life and figure out what I wanted to do, how I was going to make it work. Uh, it, it was a very tough time, but I also saw a lot of opportunity in it. I, I compared it to the day you get out of high school or the day you graduate college and you have the opportunity to do anything you want on the planet. And here I was again with the opportunity, you know, I could have moved to Australia if I wanted, whatever I wanted to do. Uh, the only caveat is I had, you know, my son I had to take care of. Uh, so can we talk a little bit about just to help people understand what autism is and what high functioning autism is? Yeah. So he was high functioning autistic um, and they were just learning about the spectrum then and, and how that all worked. Um, my son could hold a conversation and uh, function in society well. He was very socially behind, especially at, at the age of nine. Uh, he wouldn't look you in the eye, didn't understand why you should say hello or goodbye. It makes no logical sense. Um, he was failing at school all the way through high school. He was failing through it. Um, we, we you know, barely got him through each year. And it wasn't because he didn't know anything. It was quite the opposite. It's He was almost an eidetic memory. So anything you told him, he knew it. As soon as you told him, that was it. Um, we took him at like three or four years old to uh, the Smithsonian in New York City. And he read the sign with the great blue whale. And like a month later, he repeated it to us. And I was wow. like, there's something unusual about this kid that he can yeah, do that. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So he had an incredible intelligence level, um, but he wouldn't show his work in school. He didn't understand why he had to show it. Uh, he also didn't do things the same way as other people in his brain. He processed math totally different. You know, you and I learned old school math. The kids in school today learn a different way. Mm -hmm. Well, he has a totally different way that he tried to explain to me before, but I don't get it. And, um, and so whenever we encountered teachers, like most of them today require you to show your work, he just couldn't or wouldn't do it. Uh, and it was a struggle for him. It was a struggle for him to make friends, uh, and that that was what I had to constantly fight with him about uh, until I learned to really look at him like a Klingon. Like a Klingon. Uh, <laughs> he, he was Spock. Forgive me for laughing, but that's... I'm sorry. I'm not a Trekkie. Um, I looked at him like Spock because I realized he does everything out of logic. And it 
to me, it actually seemed like a higher evolution of human being, right. like the next level up, that he's not emotional about stuff. He, he just thinks it through. Um, and when I learned to work with him that way, uh, he, he was much more receptive to me, still not receptive to school. Right. Um, and as he learned about his autism, he actually used his autism to help his autism because he would read books about it and figure out how do I deal with people socially? Even today, he's 22 now. That's amazing. We were just talking about how he's trying to uh, learn how to um, influence people because to him, if he tells somebody the right way to do something, they should just do it. Why wouldn't they take my advice? So he's struggling with that a little bit. Um, but he basically chose to not just overcome his autism, but to use his autism to advance his life. Um, at 15, I thought he was still going to live with me his whole life. And when he was graduating high school, he was like, Dad, I'm going to be moving out. I'm going to go live on my own. And I was like, I think he can do it. Uh, and he did. He started a trade school uh, for a few months, uh, but even trade schools weren't for him. Uh, and he got a job uh, down in North, back down in North Carolina uh, as an AV engineer. Like they hired him to do mm -hmm. AV and they promoted him to an engineer right away because everything they taught him, he knew. And he, they could just teach him more and more and more. And the kid didn't even have to go to college to be an engineer. Position. That's amazing. Yeah, I think there's a misconception about autism in, in a lot of respects. I've, uh, I've had some other interviews with some people that came on the show and uh, some other guests that uh, have children that have autism. And the the spectrum that you're talking about is um, at, at times very distinct, but very unique. Because like you said, there's this intelligence there that a lot of people don't understand really is there. Um, the, one, the guest that I have had on the show uh, the majority of the individuals uh, that were raising children with autism and they the ones that uh, came on they, they brought their kids on at times too one of them in particular um they were more uh socially within themselves they, like you just said they don't like to come you know go socially but the intelligence factor was was very high actually it, it's interesting that that all came about so he's he's a he's got his own his own career. He's got his own place to live, and so you did your job very well, actually. Yeah, you know, and I'm blessed. I recognize that he was in the the I guess you'd call it better end of the spectrum to be, uh, because there's there's a lot of parents that have a lot more fighting than I have to do to try to raise their children to be independent, and, and sometimes never make it there. Um, well, we have but, that. In, yeah, we have that in regular ones. I mean, my kids. Yes. I, I tell my kids to do something. Yeah, do it this way. Don't do this. Don't do this. What do they do? They do the opposite. <laughs> so, uh, I can relate to the statement that you made earlier with regard to he doesn't understand why. Hey, I told them how to do it. They just didn't do it, and I don't know why. <laughs> but you know, in the end, the parenting end of it all fell down to the way I do everything in life. And and again, I didn't understand why everybody didn't do this. I'm always very intentional about each thing I'm doing. Whatever, if I choose to do it, I'm going to do it the best it can be done. I'm going to be intentional about it, and I'm very relentless about it. And and that rec that means also recognizing when what you're doing isn't working and changing it. And it, 
it took a lot of experimenting and changing and trying different things with him. And it, I think that was one of the main lessons I learned for myself in life in raising him uh, is course correcting. There was so much course correcting to do and, and not looking at that as failing or losing. It's just sometimes it's changing the plan and sometimes it's changing the vision a little. If your vision starts becoming unattainable, uh, you, you just have to be realistic about that. So, well, you kind of, I mean, you do that within yourself. You obviously came from a family that was dysfunctional or broken, you know, in certain aspects. Uh, you, at an early age, started seeking answers as to how to change your environment and what you could do to be a better person, you know, all around. Uh, taking a job as a firefighter and then an EMT, obviously, you know, gave you a, a path but you had to reinvent yourself at some point in your life and turn yourself around, you know, in, in, in your choices and how you move your life forward. And I think that, uh, from what I know about you in our conversations previous to this and so forth, that you've done a very good job with that in actuality, you've changed courses and you've done it effectively. Yeah. One of the things I love with the medic school I went to was not a, uh, what I call monkey medicine, where, you know, if this, then do this, you really, they really taught you how to do everything on a break it down level. Uh, and one of the key things was the, um, I call it today, the after action review, it's reviewing at the end of every call, what you did and what could you do to make it better in the future? Um, that was one of the, the key takeaways that I applied to the rest of life. Um, one thing I heard early on in life is how you do one thing is how you should do everything assuming you're doing that one thing right. Uh, so, and I have learned that, that everything, literally everything you do, whether it's EMS, uh, a, a regular career, you know, desk job, a relationship with somebody, relationship with friends, wife, uh, taking care of your health, it's all actually done the exact same way. And it's it makes it a whole lot easier to do and to, when you figure out which one you're doing the best, model the rest of them off of that. And I, I talk to guys about, look, you could be really good at video games. That that could be the thing that you're great at. You've topped out at, uh, you know, World of Warcraft or you know whatever today's game is. Take those same methods that you use, break it down, and apply that to your relationship, at, you know, at work or whatever it is that you're suffering with, and, and try putting that towards it. And it definitely it, it's helped a lot of people uh, when they look at it that way. It makes it a little more simple to to see that way. Yeah, it's it's. Um, I think it's a very unique way of approaching things. I wish more people would do that. Um, I I understand what you're saying. I can say that I have done that in my life. Uh, we should do it with the police department as well. Every time you go to a call, you'd finish the call. You'd have to kind of you know after the call evaluate it, see what you did right, see what you did wrong, what you could have done better. You know, what went wrong if something did go wrong? You know, how to effectively make the same situation better in the future? And um, I've kind of done the same thing. I think a lot of us within this arena, whether you're a soldier, a police officer, a firefighter, EMS, anybody within those type of you know, doctors, nurses even, that you've been in those positions, it allows you that uh, unique opportunity of being able to evaluate what you've done from a perspective of, of making sure that it, you either do it right again or you change what went wrong. Um, and uh, the principles for others to do that 
is probably a process. Uh, you have any recommendations for those of those of us out here? I mean, I, I would say us, but the listeners out here that may uh, not have had the unique opportunity you and I had. Uh, it's practice. It, it really is a lot of practice to do uh, a review of everything you've done and uh, each day. And the the more successful of a person you are, usually the more reviews you do. I'll do a review after this call so that the next podcast I'm on, you know, I might do better. And, you know, every single activity I do uh, starts and ends the same way. Um, I start with thinking, first thing, clear your mind of whatever it was you were doing last. It also prevents you from ever having a bad day. If you can end an activity that went wrong and say, okay, well, that didn't go so well. You do your review of it. You say, all right, now what am I going to do next? And think about the thing that you have to do next and take a second and breathe. And we learned this it also came from uh, EMS, and I'm sure they teach it in the police academies. We were in a beach town area, and there's nothing worse than pulling up to a beach uh, emergency, and you'll have 50 people that want to pull you out of the ambulance and bring you there uh, to, to the victim. And we were always taught, keep the doors locked, breathe for a second, and think about what is it that you're trying to achieve, and how do you have to show up as a person to achieve that? And then you Doing that puts you in control. So then you can have a plan and you can take action. And then you do that review afterwards. And you just do that on everything you do. Look, you can do that when you make coffee in the morning. You can start with that. Something that, that simple of take a breath, think about what, how do I have to make coffee? Because I screw up making my coffee a lot, or I used to. Um, think about it. What do I have to do to make a good cup of coffee? And how do I have to show up to do it? You know, uh, coffee is not really an interactive thing, but there are some events in life where you have to show up strong and authoritative. There's some events where you have to just sit quiet and listen to. And if you can pre-plan in your head the best way to show up to get the results that you want, then you'll win at everything that you do. And then, again, do that review afterwards uh, so that you can improve it for next time. And even if it's not that exact same event, you know that that mindset worked for that kind of activity and it helped you get where you wanted. So do it again for something else. Yeah, I think it's a really unique um, way of doing that. I, I I believe that that can help people through, uh, like, as you know, on this podcast, I've talked to a lot of people who are trying to get through grief after losing someone or um, having to kind of reinvent their lives after losing their husband or their wife or their children um, and, and don't know what to do to move forward, don't know how to take the next step the next day. They don't know what to do after that loss. You know, they, they don't know how to get restarted, I guess. They can probably use that same methodology, do you think? I, I would imagine, of course, that's, that's the harder kind of loss to deal with. Uh, you know, as a loved one, a spouse, especially. Um, so it takes time. You know, that it's not always a, a two minute, you know, review and reset and go. Uh, you have to give yourself grace when you have things like that happen and, and say to yourself, I'm going to be pretty shitty for the next week. And, you know, I need time to, to deal with this uh, and, and give yourself those opportunities as well. Otherwise, you if you have a traumatic event and you just go back to work the next day, that's when you get the PTSDs setting in. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, I, th yeah, I think that um, people 
in any situation, whether it be just making coffee and trying to reevaluate if something goes wrong, take a breath, like you said, lock the doors for a minute and um, just take a uh, breathing is really, really important. People forget how to breathe. And yeah. uh, they should understand that taking a nice, slow breath and just, you know, even for a minute, big breath and hold it and just let it all out and just kind of relax and clear your mind and clear your heart and, uh, you know, take a proactive approach to whatever you're, you're going into. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty cool. Uh, so I know that you talk, you, you do, um, a talk with people, don't you, you kind of share that, that methodology with some of, uh, the, the community. I do. I do primarily, um, I'm a member of uh, the Order of Man. Uh, Ryan Mickler runs a big podcast for it's about restoring uh, masculinity to men. Um, I think most people, you know, in the beginning, he really struggled. Most people thought, oh, you know, masculinity, bad. We're trying to get that down. But, you know, I think most people realize this, the spectrum's been swung a little too far the other way. Uh, and a lot of men don't understand their role as men. So he started a really great movement towards that. Um, and he has a, a group within that called the Iron Council that I do a lot of coaching. There's about a thousand guys in it right now. It's been growing extremely rapidly. Um, it's not even coaching because uh, I, I take one-on-one -on -one calls with guys, but I do um, Zoom calls with the guys to uh, talk to them about my, my main thing is about overcoming your fears and stepping out of your comfort zones. Uh, it's so huge in life. I watch so many people that have dreams that they never pursue. And you hear all the reasons. Oh, when my kids grow up, I'm going to do it. I hate that one because when your kids grow up, your kids miss the opportunity to be part of that. Uh, there's so many reasons people have uh, financial reasons or whatever. And there's always a reason. There's always another excuse the excuses are easy to come up with um so one of the things i really try to talk to them about is what if you don't do it what if you don't pursue your vision what if you do nothing that to me should be a bigger fear than trying it's, what's the point of living if you're not going for what you want in life and trying to make it happen so i i love having those conversations uh, you know, it's, I'm on this podcast and, and um, work with other ones and uh, working on a book that hopefully will be out in about a year um, at, down the road. I don't think I realized until uh, a couple of years ago that the way my mind works at always trying to be better, I thought everybody always did that. Um, but apparently complacency is really big for a lot of people. And, and there's so much more to life when you step outside your comfort zone and you actually learn that living uncomfortably is way more fun than living comfortably. Yeah, I agree with that. You know, it, it's interesting. I saw a thing on GMA this morning, the fact that um, four and a half million people left their jobs uh, within the last year um, to reinvent themselves because they felt stuck in a place they felt that uh, they weren't going anywhere in their current job and uh, they wanted more out of life. They reevaluated over the last couple of years from 2020 to 2021 that this really isn't what I want anymore. And um, I need to kind of change my environment and move forward and take that step because they were either too comfortable or very, very unhappy in their 
present situation and made the move to change. Yeah, well, when you've got a government that's told 11 million plus people that their job is not essential, then, you know, to me, it's a shame that only 4 million of them have stepped into entrepreneurship. But it is great saying that so many people that are doing this step, um, but every job is essential. So. Oh, absolutely. Uh, 100%. Whether you're a dishwasher, I started my career in life as a dishwasher at two guys from Italy Pizzeria. And to me, that was the greatest job in the world because I get paid for it. <laughs> yeah. No boss is going to pay somebody to do a job if it's not essential. Why would oh, exactly. Job yeah. Exactly. So I come home. I, I learned how to make pizza from the Italians. I mean, really good pizza because <laughs> they were a true Italian. In fact, I had to learn Italian to half understand them. It, uh, that was a journey in itself. <laughs> uh, it was kind of fun, actually. Um, so you you kind of did that yourself. You uh, took a, a what you call a side hustle, and you turned that into uh, like a multi million dollar business. Yeah, it, it was it was rather odd. Um, so a couple months maybe uh, after my separation, um, again I'm in this one bedroom, one studio, you know, which is basically one room with a bathroom, like a hotel room with my son. Uh, my mom fires me. Uh, so that was fun. It, again, a very toxic family relationship my whole life. Yeah, getting um, fired is one thing. Getting fired by your parents is, is yeah. I guess, would add a, add a little step to that. It, it, was, a, it was a tough time. Um, but I, I've never been one to be depressed. I've never been one to do anything but look forward and try to figure things out. And one of the things that I had come across working in my parents' hobby store, people used to call all the time asking for faster motors for their kids' little power wheel electric ride-on cars. And be, I, probably was because we both repaired those cars and we had radio control cars. So the two of them, Google put together and... They had picked us to call, but for whatever reason, um, there was I saw a demand out there, and I, I have always followed the demand, followed you know the need to serve people. You can't create a demand; you have to find out what it is they need. And uh, so I started this little side hustle. I, I found motors that were faster than what came up from the factory, and started a little side hustle. Um, you know selling the motors, packaging them, making instructions for it. Um, and um, that, that's my website you got showing there. Uh, I got that website going with the literally the only $200 I had in my bank account. Um, my initial orders, I actually would not have had the money to buy the product had people not placed the orders. Uh, so the, all the initial money came from that $200 to start the website. Uh, and then I kept listening to the feedback from people. Uh, a couple of weeks later, my mom hired me back and um, I'm working in the store. And the way my days look basically for the next 10 years was I would wake up at about 6 a.m. and either work on the website or answer customer emails, get my kid up, get him off to school. Um, I had to drive him to school for a while because I wasn't in the same district that he was attending. Uh, eventually we moved to into from our one room apartment into a two car garage uh, that was converted to an apartment, which was like double the space for us. So we were thrilled yeah, um, yeah. get the kid off to school. And then I would go into my parents' stores and 
put together all the orders for my company that needed to go out for the day and her shipping employee for her website would, I would pay them to ship my orders and then uh, work till six o'clock, pick up my kid, either go to karate with him or go home, do dinner, hang out till, you know, eight, nine o'clock, whenever his bedtime was, and then get back and work on the website and answer another round of emails. And that was 10 years, every single day, six days a week uh, of doing that. And the business just continued to grow. I continued to add more and more products, never having uh, invested more than that initial $200 and just using the profits from one sale to, to come up with new stuff and, and more product line. Uh, and that was going great for a while. Uh, and that was all learning about stepping past your fears and looking for opportunities to serve people, to create products uh, that people needed. You know, I came up with a steel gear to replace the weakest gear in the gearboxes. And every now and then somebody would say, well, why don't you make all the gears in steel? I'm like, well, I, I'd be robbing you of your money. The other gears are strong enough. So it's not really serving people to me. Uh, you know, we just made what people needed. And uh, yeah, if you go to, yeah. if they go to your website, they got, you have a really cool, uh, up, uh, a, an example, basically, on there. I should have grabbed that graphic and shown everybody uh, of the little police car. The, the little oh, yeah, police car. So yeah. um, whenever we're coming out with new products, we need a test vehicle. And uh, so I'll, I'll go buy a power of wheels and we'll test it out. And assuming we haven't chopped the thing up into too many pieces, uh, we'll then um, reach out to that you know, local police department or fire department, uh, put their graphics on it, and then donate the vehicle to them. Uh, that they'll either use for community service or they'll rash, uh, raffle off, whatever works for them. Uh, that's always a fun thing to do. I love yeah. the charity opportunities. We don't get a lot of charity opportunities uh, in this line, um, but we've done some fun things. Uh, Make-A-Wish Foundation, we love working with them. Uh, you know, We got a kid last year that um, wanted to be a UPS driver. So they, uh, we worked with UPS to actually build him a little mini UPS truck. Oh, very cool. It was his dream. Like the whole very town cool. came out. And, yeah. Um, yeah. So it was about building, building the business was about everything else that we did and, and learning, like you said, step past fear. And then came the really scary time when the relationship with my family, like I said, never good. The store was going downhill and one thing I realized is I really tied my side hustle into my family's business because they were doing all my shipping. I was storing all my product there, certainly couldn't keep it in my garage house. And um, uh, I was even buying some of my product through their distributors on their accounts. And it came to a point where I realized that this store was not going to be around much longer, that even if my mom, the, the issue I always had with the store is my mom would not relinquish control, even though she said she was relinquishing control. Uh, she was tired, you know, no fault to her on that. Mm -hmm. She's 78 years old and, you know, it, she just didn't have it in her to do the big changes that the store need. Again, stepping past fear to get to the reward on the other side. And she didn't have it in her anymore. So the day finally came when I said to myself, I got to move my company out from her building and have it be independent. And that was a terrifying time when, because I knew I had to, if, if her store closed and I didn't have this in place, I would be shut down as well. And then my son and I would have nothing left again. Right. 
and I, I, I figured out a plan. And this is when we talk about stepping past fears. Um, the opposite end of that for a lot of people is uh, paralysis by analysis, where they plan and plan and plan, and they won't do anything until they know 100% of what they're doing. Um, and I knew I couldn't figure it all out because I actually knew I didn't know what all the problems were going to be until I moved out. I, I had to figure it out. I knew some of the basic stuff. I would have to figure out shipping and, you know, how I was going to do all this stuff. Uh, but I didn't have it all. When I got to, I would say about 80% of the, the stuff, I went driving around and I found a location that was 58 cents a square foot. It was a building that was wow. really falling down terribly. Wow. Uh, it was so such a horrible condition that we started in. Um, I was very fortunate that my mom's shipping uh, employee recognized that the store was closing and asked to come with me. Uh, and he was the only one that really knew my product well enough to ship it correctly, too. So I was very blessed in that. Uh, today, he's the, my operations manager. And he runs all the day-to-day -day business. And that's what allows me to be on this call today is that the, the daily operations of processing orders he handles for us. Um, and we made it work. And, and I never stopped because I don't want to grow stale again. Uh, you know, uh, it's, it's an odd feeling. It's almost, I don't know if it's a sickness or a, uh, an addiction, but... I still worry today that tomorrow my business is going to get wiped out by a tornado and I'll have nothing. So I always am pushing for one more with it to, to make it one better, to serve one more person uh, and, and make it a more, uh, a better place. And now there's also a stack of employees that rely on me too, which is a whole different world. Well, that's your one more thing. That's, that's one more thing. That's one more yeah. thing before you go. You've got it squared away. You've got it taken care of. So what, uh, let's talk about your book really quick. What, what's your book about? That you're, that you're um, so my book, uh, what I want it to be about is a, uh, a memoir of my life um, that goes into all these lessons that I learned as it goes through, but tells the lessons in a way that you can relate to you. Because again, the book is going to be about serving people. It's not me saying, look at this life I've had. Um, my life, it's, not the usual life, but it's, you know, I'm no Ben Franklin or anything. Right. Um, so it's going to be to hopefully help other people get past their fears, get past their problems, learn tools that they can use. Um, and it's kind of funny. Will Smith just came out with uh, his memoir that he tried to write the exact same way. Uh, so I've been using that to, to kind of model how I want to write mine. Um, but I'm no Will Smith either. I mean, that man's a natural storyteller. You know, everything, like you said before, everything takes practice. Just keep doing it. Exactly. Yeah. So it's probably going to take a year, maybe even two to get the book uh, done and published and out. Um, but I want to make sure it's right and and provides the lessons in a way, again, that people will relate to. I think that's important. It is. When it comes out, we'll have to have another conversation. Absolutely. 100%. But tell people how to get a hold of you and uh, find your uh, your business, this unique business that uh, I actually love. If I was, if my kids were still young and if I had grandkids, I'd be shopping there in a heartbeat. <laughs> sure. The business, as you can see on the screen, is mltoys.com. So you can find it there. Uh, 
And for me, you see my name on the screen. I'm just alanplacer at gmail.com. Uh, you can reach out to me there if you have any you know, particular things you want to discuss. I'm always happy to, to talk to folks because the more I serve other people, the more I learn about me and the, the better my journey gets too. So um, I love talks like these because I'll come away from this being a better person. Well, you know, it, you have become a better person. So uh, coming from sitting on top of the pile uh, of rubble and uh, walking the valley of death to where you're at today is a profound journey that you have come through and what you've been able to build for yourself, but those around you. And uh, this is one more thing before you go. So with that in mind, do you have any words of wisdom you'd like to share with uh, our listeners? Maybe uh, one more thing. I, I think my biggest one more thing for people would be don't be afraid to try something new. Be afraid not to try something new. Let that be the bigger fear in your life and you'll go places. And yeah, you're going to you're going to fail at things. You're going to have things go wrong. Um, the bigger the problem is, the bigger the reward is on the other side. And if you can really ingrain that into you. Um, I'll, I'll give you a real quick thing I picked up on in life. Fear that we all have is not something that stops you. Nobody has ever been stopped by fear. Um, they choose to stop for fear. If you think of fear as the yellow caution sign on the side of the road that says falling rocks, you don't stop when you see that falling rock sign, but that sign is instilling fear into you that you can get hit by a rock. You use that fear, that sign, to make an informed decision moving forward, to look up when you're driving, to be more cautious for rocks on the road. But you don't let it stop you. You use it to make a better decision. And when you start seeing fear that way, you see fear actually as a powerful tool, not something that holds you back. It helps you envision what's ahead and get around it better. And I love looking at fear that way, and I probably... I think I might be addicted to fear because uh, I know on the other side of fear is is a reward. And I know in the business world, uh, other people are going to stop with fear and I'll go past it and my business will grow better. Absolutely. One hundred percent. That's excellent words of wisdom. Excellent words of wisdom. So, Alan, thank you very much for joining us on this conversation. I really appreciate uh, you and what you provide to the world. Thank you for being you. Thank you for your service as an EMT and a firefighter, as, as well as what you bring to the community. Thank you very much, Mike. Thanks for having me on. I love what your show is doing for people. Thank you. Now, everybody else out there that are listening, please don't forget to join us on the App Store in the Google Play Store where you can download our free app. One more thing before you go podcast, it's available. It is free. You can find one more thing before you go on there. Take it anywhere you want to go. Compliments of Superpass. We're going to have an exciting new year coming up ahead of us. So please subscribe, follow us on any of the platforms that you listen to. We're on them all. Uh, Spotify, Apple, Amazon, you name it, we're on it. And YouTube. And that's all for them. That's all for now. Again, thank you very much. We'll see you this year. Thanks for listening to this episode of One More Thing Before You Go, a unique conversation about life. If you like our show and want to know more, check out our website at beforeyougopodcast.com. That's beforeyougopodcast.com. 
tell your story, share your expertise, contribute to the blog, and subscribe to the newsletter. You can find us as well as subscribe to the program and rate us on your favorite podcast listening platform. And one more thing before you go. Have a nice day, have a nice week, and thanks for listening. One More Thing Before You Go, a unique conversation about life podcast, is a creation of One More Thing Productions, established 2010, all rights reserved.